and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 116th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. First heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, 115, and episode 82, also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a B.A. in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. If you listened to the last six episodes with Jonathan, you heard us talk about the first three seasons of The Wire. On this episode, we'll be discussing up through the end of season four. So consider this your blanket spoiler alert. And now, on to the show. Yeah. Hey, what's up? Hey, nothing much. Your uh, your ring is back to that chirping thing again. Huh. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but. Uh, okay. Yeah, so what's up? Oh, nothing much. Yeah, so how's the uh, PUBG going? Going okay, I guess. Yeah, didn't get a chicken dinner tonight. Now, what does the chicken dinner mean again? That's uh, that's all you get when you win. Oh, in a few points. I see. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, season four of uh, the uh, the wire. Yeah. So what do you think of this season? Uh, it ended on kind of a sad note, uh, but I liked it overall. I thought it was a solid season. Um, I did appreciate the uh, the shift in focus, as you mentioned. There's a new kind of focus each season. This definitely focused on kind of the it was kind of a dual one with the politics and also the uh, education side, but those kind of dovetailed. So yeah, what I like about it is it kind of snowballs, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've still got the bark sales, we've still got the politics from season three, and we've got the school stuff now. Mm-hmm. The ports are kind of in the back background, but there are, there is some mention about like city redevelopment stuff that's going on that Carcetti seems to be interested in in order to put his name on something, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we may see how that affects the ports. I think they were talking about the location of the grain pier or something or how they were going to tear that stuff down or something to build the uh, stuff they wanted to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I was going to mention that I don't know if you want to get into yet, but we did see uh, Spiros again. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting, actually, because I thought that those guys had totally left town after season three. Yeah, same here. They were sort of still in the mix. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, the prop Joe was still getting his stuff from somewhere, and he seemed to be still getting it from the peers. I just thought it was, like, literally someone else. I didn't realize that he, like, went to Europe and came back or whatever. 
Yeah, I don't, we don't really know what those guys did. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I thought it, they were going to get it from somebody else too. But it looks like Spiros is still mm-hmm. still their supplier, and they had the meeting. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but they had the meeting with Marlowe mm-hmm. because Marlowe didn't trust that Prop Joe had been ripped off, and so he wanted to meet the person who was supplying them. Mm-hmm. So what about Marlowe this season? He's kind of the big bad of this season, I guess you could say. Yeah, definitely. Well, you were right about Snoop and Chris Partlow. My goodness. <laughs> Yeah. What about them? <laughs> yeah, I did like. Uh, I think I was exemplified in the uh, when Chris Portland was like, "You want to say a few words for the dead?" And uh, yeah, <laughs> Snoop was like, "Yeah, we, we're gathered here because some New York boys came too far south or whatever." <laughs> like, I was like, "Man, that's cold." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were. They were. Yeah, killing people left, right, and center just mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Well, okay. So, what did you think of the first scene of the season, though? We got to start there, I guess. Oh, loved it. Yeah, that was um, that was great. In the hardware store. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite scenes like, of the whole series. I thought it was really, really good. It set up because you knew you knew right then that the um, that the nail gun was going to be important. Actually, it was important, but in a way that I didn't even think about it being important necessarily. Like I thought, okay, yeah. well they're going to use this because you know, and, and I thought, okay, so guns are traceable, right? So maybe this is a way to like mm-hmm. get around that and they can kill people with the nail gun and they'll never know who did it or whatever but as they mentioned later after uh, again getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but after um, well, who was it that shot the nail gun into the street what's his name um, Herc. Herc yeah after Herc does that they're like oh well we can trace if we have the, the gun we can trace the nail gun to the to the thing so that's not even true necessarily but I hadn't even considered the idea that you know, this is going to be the thing with the doors and whatever, the vacants. So that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was just, you know, there's kind of this looming dread throughout the whole season because, you know, in season three, the mayor and the police chiefs and everybody have been trying to get the murder rate down, right? Mm-hmm. And the murder rate seems to be down, and so everybody's satisfied. But you also are seeing Chris and Snoop just go around killing people left and right, and you're like, boy, when they find out about this, <laughs> they're going to be in for like a world of shit. And sure enough, <laughs> like when Lester Freeman finds out that they've been hiding the bodies in these vacant houses and stuff, mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, we're going to have a lot of bodies. We don't know how many. It could be dozens or something. And they're like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to sit on this, or do you want us to take them out now? And they're like, well, sit on it. Mm-hmm. And then finally they change their mind and they're like, okay, take them out. We got to get them out while it's still going to be on Royce's turn as mayor and not on Carcetti's. So yeah. Get them out yeah. I thought that was an interesting turn because that actually, not to jump ahead again, but that did actually work out in Bubbles' favor, right? Eventually. In Bubbles' favor? How's that? Well, I mean, remember the scene at the beginning of the last episode of the season where, you know, he tries to hang himself and stuff after what's-his-name gets the hot shot that wasn't meant for him. Um, and then, oh, yeah. uh, oh what's-his-name, uh, you yeah, know, Landsman was like, oh, he suffered enough. And, and the other guy's like, oh, what about the clearance rate? He's like, forget the clearance rate. You know, because, like, it's already, it's already shot at that point because we've got all these bodies in the vacants that are already up on the board at that point. So, really, it was kind of lucky that that all happened for Bubble if it was going to happen for him at all that it happened when it did because so. then he could just yeah. throw that on the pile Bubbles, and you know <laughs> Bubbles' luck holds out in mm-hmm. a way although Bubbles is scraping the bottom I think so. yeah 
Man, yeah, a lot of stuff's going on. Yeah, one, one thing I would like um, to know, and I have reached out to David Simon, just so you know, I've, I've uh, put a message through to his website. So, David Simon, if you're listening, come on in the Rob Burgess Show and talk about The Wire. Um, but uh, I, d- I do want to ask, like, how, how much did he know that this series was going to continue? Because, like, I get the sense that he knew the whole time that this was not going to be a one-shot deal. Or if he did, he definitely didn't make it look that way. Because, like, for example, like, when that happens with Bubbles, and then we see that last montage, uh, we see Waylon come back. And the way he brings back characters like Waylon is a very unhurried way. And, you know, these are rich characters, and they obviously have a lot within them that they have to give to the show. And it's like... Would he really have introduced this character way back when if he didn't know for a fact that, and I already see where this is going in season five, he's going to be a sponsor, he's going to help Bubbles get clean, you know, I already, already see that arc. But, you know, that's a long simmering arc, because what was the last time we saw Whale in season two, three? I mean, it's been a while. So, I don't know, what's your take? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think these characters are rich enough that they can they can stay there for a minute if they need to, and they can come back if they need to. You know, it's like I mean, I, I, I've been noticing so much more this time that the Dozerman character who got shot in season two, I think it was, maybe season three. Um, Is this the guy that Presbulewski uh, shot? Uh, no, that guy died. Um, Dozerman. Who's Dozerman? He's the white cop who he had longer hair in the first season he was in, and then later he's had shorter hair. Okay, he's kind of a quiet guy. He's 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 either paired with Herc or Carver usually, I think, or possibly um, what's that other guy's name? The guy I always forget his name of. Um, he's he's another. There, there are these two guys that just um, I always forget that they're there, even though they've been there like kind of almost like the whole time almost, but they just don't have much character and stuff like they're pretty undeveloped compared to other characters is this the one with a goatee are you talking about him or is this someone else the guy with like there's there's a black guy who has been there uh what's his name god uh and then there's the white guy Hmm. and i don't know if he has a goatee or not but um anyways i don't know what we were saying about him but uh, you you were yeah. mentioning Dozerman as a character. You were noticing him more this time. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just a character. I mean, these characters kind of they drop in and they drop out, and you know, um, I don't know. They're well they're well developed enough that they could have more story if they need to, but they don't always. I guess I'm just saying, like the Dozerman and this other guy, um, they are not. You know, they're always there, but they're not totally fully developed. But they could have a story arc. Like if they had gone into season six or season seven or something, they probably could have done more with these guys or something potentially. But yeah, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe they just would have brought other people back if more seasons had happened. But it's just it's just very interesting to me how they do that because it's like, you know, I would have felt slightly cheated. Yeah, out of like Wayne's character, for example, if that was all we saw of him, he gave that one speech, he met Bubbles on the bench, and that was it. Like that feels incomplete to me. Like it was almost like they knew this trajectory was like in their back pocket at least the whole time. At least like you know, if we get to do this, maybe we'll we'll flush this out more. But it seemed like they knew where they were going with that even back then. So yeah, yeah, that would be it'd be fascinating if you could get David Simon on the show. Mm-hmm. Then you know, obviously, start making your question list now and I'll, I'll start putting together some questions too just in case oh yeah absolutely there's definitely things that i would ask him if i you know 
or would you know have you asking for me <laughs> sure but so yeah i don't know we may be we may be overselling our our uh our uh our gravitas or something or our uh, reach here a little bit right now but whatever yeah we'll see you never know <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, near the beginning of the season, also, Herc is working for Mayor Royce, right? And he, he's kind of just signed up for this job because he realizes he's too dumb to get to make rank uh-huh. on his merits and stuff. So he's like, this is the shortcut. Uh-huh. And then he's he's just kind of bumbling around the mayor's <laughs> mansion or something, like looking for, you know, or downtown the hall or whatever. Uh-huh. And he walks in on the mayor getting a blowjob. Yes. And then he turns around and walks out. And, and then he goes to uh, Valchek to ask him what he should do. And he's like, what should I do about this? Like, should I tell somebody? Should I not tell somebody? And Belichick tells him, like, oh, boy, I wish I was in your situation. Just don't say anything. And then in a couple of weeks, he's going to come to you and ask you, like, what job you want to have. He's mm-hmm. going to give it to you. And if he doesn't do that, then you can talk about it. <laughs> and he knows the deal. You know the deal. And I know the deal. And you're a lucky guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and basically, it works out like that. So that was that was fun. Yeah, that was almost like now that I think about it, it was almost the inverse of what that uh, conversation with Lester Freeman and McNulty about what job don't you want. This is like, you know, the the opposite of that. It's like this is like a come to Jesus moment or whatever. But it's like if you play this right, this will work out in your favor. But then that you know, uh, you know, who's that one boss that comes in and like basically shutters the the special thing that that one guy that. Uh, Rawls oh points. yeah, that guy. That's definitely a guy I want to talk about because uh, in my in my hogwan right now, my school. Like we've had a boss in for the past several months. He's got me about ready to quit this job because he's just so incompetent, mm-hmm. and he's just and he's just and like this character in the show is exactly who I've been thinking about while I think about my boss because our boss is just making so many bad decisions. It's almost like he's trying to make bad decisions to run off talent because that's what he's effectively doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people have already quit. And it's just like I, I see that and I, I really just, you know, I really, really uh, vibed with these scenes in the show this time. I always have because I've had bad bosses before. Oh, yeah. And just, you know, the morale sapping. And, oh, yeah. You know, just the, the guy comes in, hey, I've been like, I'm just, a, I'm a cop like you. I've been out there 24 7, you know, mm-hmm. on the streets doing the job just like mm-hmm. you. So you respect me, right? Right? Yeah, and you know, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Well, and that I, I love the scene too. In retrospect, where he first gets that job too, because like he doesn't seem quite so bad in that one scene where Rawls appoints him. He's just like, well, this is what's happening. You know, what can I do? You know, but then he comes in and he's like, yeah. all right, I've got my little shred of power, and I'm going to exploit it for everything it's worth, and I'm going to destroy everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, his name was Lieutenant Charles Marimo. Yep. That guy, that was a good actor. I thought he did that part well. It was, it was definitely like the the the, the nightmare boss that we've all had at one time or another in our lives. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he comes in. He obviously emphasizes the wrong things. Mm-hmm. He says like attendance to the meetings is mandatory. Like so he's like, where's this guy? And I'm like, well, he was out on a stakeout all night. He's like, well, attendance to the meetings is not mandatory. Exactly. Um, people are leaving. Um, I think somebody said at some point, I forget if it was Landsman or who said that, uh, Mermo does not cast off talent lightly. He heeds it away with great force. Uh, <laughs> they, they know this is what he's, this is what he's for. It's like chasing away the good police from a unit. 
Yeah. um, Well, he's like, he's the ultimate, like, they talk about, like, juking the stats and chasing stats. He's the ultimate stat hound. Like, that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about actual good police work or any, like, actual results beyond, like, what you can measure on a graph. You know, that he wants, we want street rips or whatever he's talking about. He's like, that's the point that he's driving towards. He doesn't care about actually doing any good, quote unquote. All he wants to do is just, you know, (laughs) get those numbers, you know. Well, a lot of people in the higher up part seem to do that. I think the fact that that's been a, a consistent thing that, you know, I think David Simon obviously has a huge problem with that based on the way that that's mm-hmm. always the thing that the stupid characters are saying that they want. And like, and so, yeah, so he basically makes them use the, the, the information they've got off of the, the wire that they've been using against Marlowe. He wants to do some raids that day or something and they're like well and even Herc, who's like the, the stupidest cop we see most of the time is like well you know they change them around so if we go on if we jump on it today they're probably not still going to be there it's like no we're doing it we're going to take some bodies we're going to crack some heads the western district way or whatever mm-hmm. then they do it and they don't get anything and he's like what the hell and somebody's going we got a leak or something blaming <laughs> other things you know like we, we told you this is what was going to happen and then they blew the wire and yeah yeah. Well, I mean, the whole reason we started talking about him was the fact that when uh, he, and uh, by the way, uh, Herc is like historically unlucky about cameras <laughs> and, and yeah. listening devices yeah, at this he, point. <laughs> yeah, his, his uh, unregistered CI. Yeah, right, exactly. What was his name? Fuzzy, what was his name? <laughs> Fuzzy Dunlap. Fuzzy Dunlap. I love it. All right, so Fuzzy Dunlap, quote unquote. Uh, anyway, he's like, uh, he, he. What does he say to him? Your your rabbi is gone, or whatever, because like he's referring to the fact that the mayor who he got his you know promotion based off of is no longer there to protect him, or whatever. But then wait, what happens to that guy Marimo or whatever after that? Because he's gone, right? He's cleaning out his desk, eventually, right? Well. What I think what happens is that Carcetti is getting increasingly yes. set up with yes. with uh, Burrell mm-hmm. and to some degree, uh, what's his name? Um, Rawls, the homicide chief. Rawls, Rawls, and he's he's really taking kind of a shine to Daniels. Mm-hmm. And Daniels said, "Hey, I used to have this thing. Can you reconstitute? Can you reconstitute this major crimes unit that I had and stuff?" And he's like, "Yeah, you can." And he said, "Um." And then he basically, Daniels basically goes to, uh, to, uh, what's his, Freeman, Lester Freeman, and says, look, as far as I'm concerned, this is your unit. You can hire whoever you want. You can fire whoever you want and stuff. And they, and then they have the fun scene where the guy's cleaning out his office and screaming and cursing and stuff, and everybody's sitting there waiting and watching, and he's like, and he comes out and he's like, can somebody help me open the door? And like, he's like, open the door for him and something. He gets gone. And then they bring in the other guy who, is basically like a total absentee manager, right? This guy has been notorious for the past season or two for he's always crazy about his uh he's building his, his summer home or his beach home or something and he's got his <laughs> yeah. blueprints with yeah. him and stuff and they're like, How's your beach house? He's like, Oh, it's going well, you know and he's like, Good, good, good. They don't really want to hear They don't care they don't <laughs> care at all. <laughs> But you know, it, it, it's a it's a mutually beneficial relationship. He's not going to manage Lester Freeman, so he's officially he's above Lester Freeman. But basically, Lester Freeman got him hired and got him the job, and Lester Freeman's going to do what he wants, and that's just you know how it's going to work out there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was extremely satisfying to watch this guy get canned there. Yeah, get moved on because yeah, we all hate that character and. 
uh, yeah, we hope more things like that will happen in real life. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what do you think about uh, Mayor Royce as far as, like, um, <laughs> one, one, sorry, one more thing about Herc when he goes to meet with Carver about that, and, and Carver's like cracking up, and he's like, Well, what did you say? He's like, Well, I, well, I complimented him. Well, I forget what. <laughs> he's like, I see you've got a nice dick there, man, and it's very hard. <laughs> that was a great scene. I also like when he goes to eventually meet with Royce, because, you know, whatever his name is, said he would. Valchek said he would, and then, like, to schedule the meeting or whatever is the woman he saw there, and they both give this, like, knowing look. It's like, mm-hmm, yeah, we both know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he knocks on the door. He's like, I'm coming in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> knocking, knocking, knocking. He's very careful at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we're, sorry, what were you going to say? Uh, what, what do you think about Mayor Royce? I mean, obviously he's a extremely corrupt, hmm. uh, you know, uh, guy who has presided over an unsuccessful city for some time here, mm-hmm. and you know, the, eventually it comes out the budget shortfall due to the you know all the things that Carcetti wanted to do when he became mayor basically look impossible now because of the the school's uh, financial shortfall mm-hmm. of like fifty four fifty million or something dollars mm-hmm. something because the schools have been running a deficit and so all the stuff about you wanted to give raises to the police department and stuff to get hard on crime and stuff like that it's people are telling him well now you can't do that and stuff mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, what, what, I forget who said it, like, maybe it was Bunny, I, I don't remember, maybe it was that former mayor Carcetti keeps consulting with, uh, state, what the line was, um, come, come to do good, stay to do well, or something, like, it was, like, a very, like, succinct, like, kind of, like, get in there because you're idealistic and stay because it's, like, profitable, like, that, that was a very succinct way of, like, kind of, and I think he's, like, a victim or, like, a, a product of that, um, you know, I'm sure when he started out, Royce or whatever, I'm sure he had idealistic intentions or whatever, at least some, some of them were idealistic, and, and, you know, by the time he's, he's out of there, he's just, you know, basically, like you said, totally corrupt, so. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about like when when Carcetti comes in to the and to the mayor's office and stuff, and he's like, "Here, come on back here, have a seat." And he's like, "Oh, I'm, I'm not even elected yet." And he's like, "Well, if you can't beat a Republican in this city, you don't deserve to be mayor. Come on, have a seat and stuff." And he's just like very friendly and stuff. And I I think that's the ideal of the transfer of power that we have for our presidents, right? It's yeah. That, well, you know, it's a vicious, yeah. vicious fight. But once it's over and somebody's winner, then the person who's leaving office needs to like be very kind and you know conciliatory towards them coming in and stuff. And so that's yeah. interesting to watch. I thought. Well, I, I thought that was a very uh, to to you know quote Omar all in the game you know moment because it was kind of like you know they both know that the fight as it were, even though it was ugly and it was corrupt in all these ways, uh, you know, it's over. We're going to put that behind us because that was all in the game. And, um, you know, now we're just going to like focus on this, what's actually happening, which is the transfer of power, like you said. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. We also had the police officer, officer Colicchio, I think his name was, uh, he's the white guy with the kind of shaved sides of his head and stuff. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's like a—he's he, one brutality complaint away from you know—I don't know. 
<laughs> but but he's kind of like, it, I mean, if there's a cop who's dumber than, you know, the funny thing is because Herc has been set up as the dumbest cop ever, and yet we still find these people who are dumber. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this this guy was just somebody I think is worth kind of, he's been there since season three at least, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he's definitely a person that, I don't know, is I've paid attention to a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. Um Let's see. Uh, Carcetti's campaigning. It was like he was, you know, he was just kind of on autopilot. He thought he was going to lose, and then he ended up winning, mm-hmm. basically because a witness got killed. But then it, I think it later came out that the person was not killed because they were a witness. It was just totally random or something, but he won because of that. So it was kind of like his actual issue that he won on. You know, it's very complicated because on the one hand, it's a it's a real issue because in the first couple seasons, a couple witnesses did get killed. Mm-hmm. And then this witness get killed for unrelated reason, it seems like. But he won on this issue this time. So mm-hmm. that was it's like he, even though he was wrong, he was right in a larger sense. Um, I did like the interactions yeah. he had after that with Kima because didn't he use her as like kind of a punching bag? as like, oh, an experienced homicide officer was placed on the case. And then like when he goes to like get down and dirty with the. Uh, uh, homicide detectives, and he drinks the rest of the coffee. She's like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you're gonna, you finish that, you're gonna, you're gonna make some more." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she was mad at him, but I, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting question. Like, who? The sh- I mean, the show again. We we get to the, the the macro and the micro, and you wonder who under which one would would Kima Greg's, Greg's be better off under. Um, you know, Royce or Carcetti. Um, and we see that the people at the top do have a huge effect on what's going on down below. And at the same time, we see that these police officers like, like, uh, you know, Kima and, uh, and, uh, McNulty are not politically aware. Really, right? I mean, Herc is politically aware insofar as he wants to keep the mayor he saw getting the blowjob in office so that he can continue to reap the benefits of his ill-gotten. But I mean, like that's the level these people are operating. Yeah, I, th- I thought there was an interesting thing with the there. There were some pointless meetings early on. Um, in, in a lot of times, there seems to be a lot of kind of like parallelism, I guess we could say, in the show where you know, mm-hmm. like something happens with the police, but it also happens with the criminals. Yeah. It also happens with the, uh, the the schools, school system, and stuff. And like, I think there was like pointless meetings in the first episode or two where the school teachers were getting a self help talk about how mm-hmm. you know you are worth it, you can do it, you you know, yeah, you, just kind of like this bland, vague, positive self help nonsense stuff. And then the police were getting a talk about terrorism and how to like recognize terrorists and stuff and what to do. And they're mm-hmm. getting, you know, binders full of information. And McNulty was taking the binders to bring home to <laughs> Beatty's kids, who he's he's living with uh, Beatty now from mm-hmm. season two. Mm-hmm. He's off the drink. Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah, he's he seems to be doing well. He's emotionally healthy. I think he had a meeting with his ex-wife. I'm sure that'll last through the entire her. rest of the series, right? He won't ever fall off the wagon. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> it, I think it, and it seems to be implied that it depends on McNulty staying away from. Um, I don't know. What we could say more. I don't know. Not getting involved in the office politics at his job. Mm-hmm. Um, not getting wrapped up in the murders, not getting wrapped up in the, you know, pursuing the high level drug stuff. It seems to be just like walking the beat seems to be his happy place where he's not tempted in a lot of ways, I guess we could say. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it was. I thought it was good to see Dee Dee come back. She's a pretty grounded individual, I think. Yeah, yeah, I like her. She's a good character. But um, yeah. Did you want to talk about Presbolewski? Yeah, yeah, and I think from the very first episode we did, where we were talking about his brutality and stuff. I mean, I said, well, Presbolewski has an art, right? Mm-hmm. And. And now we've kind of, we haven't seen the end of that arc, but we've seen where he has come to the middle school where he's teaching, right? Because he can't be a police officer anymore. He's out of that. I mean, what do you think about him now? I mean, he's rehabilitated in that he's nowhere near firearms. That's good. Um, you know, I, uh, as somebody that has, you know, been educated, you know, I have my, uh, degree in elementary education i i have turned away from the uh, education career path as it were uh for various reasons and uh i feel I, I had a little bit of uh flashbacks ptsd uh not you know quite to the you know obviously this is an extreme situation he's in a baltimore public school and, and i was not but you know with uh you know the uh, the teaching profession as it were the the insights he gains as kind of a new teacher coming into this cold uh, it definitely brought up some some yeah, some, yeah. Uh, some feelings, and I'm sure as an educator yourself, Cha, I'm sure you you feel <laughs> feel some uh, kinship with with him in, in this season here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the the I think the scene that clinched it for me was when he gave out he started giving out detentions, right? Uh-huh. He gave a ten, detention to Naaman Bryce and Naaman. That's a the kids. The kids is obviously the thing we're beating around the bush here for season four because that's a huge thing. Yeah, but. He gives Naaman Bryce, uh, Weebay's son, a uh, a detention. And then a few seconds later, he's like, uh, the kid talks him out of it. He's like, oh, man, come on, you didn't explain the rules to us. I want to be good. He's like, okay, okay, maybe we won't give you detention today. And I'm like, oh, no. No, no, don't Once do that. You say it, you got to do it. Yeah, like that's the only you rule. Can't. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's like yeah. You can you can go easy on him tomorrow after you punish him today, but you cannot back away from the punishment you've given because, uh, you know, I don't know. It's well, it's like Bunny stuff, says. Right? It's like it's like they're they're like testing every rule they can, and this is like training for the streets and what they can get away with. And if you know they think they they sense a weakness in the perimeter, they're gonna break through. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, but at the same time, like I think we see Presbolewski's like you know at the beginning he doesn't know what the hell's going on, and by the end he's you know he's made a bond with some of the students, especially Dookie, um, Mm -hmm. who we talked about, um, and Randy to some degree. Randy's Mm -hmm. always trying to run game and like stuff, but at 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 he's he's a good kid at heart. Basically, it seems like. What do you think about the kids? The kids, yeah, that was a good storyline. I, I wanted to mention something about Naaman, though, and, and the whole thing. It's like, is that too convenient that that's Weebay's son and Presbolewski's the teacher? I mean, come on. And then Bubble sees Presbolewski in the, uh, you know, in the office, and he's like, I won't, you're undercover, boss, I won't tell anybody. And it's like, you know, that's a funny <laughs> scene, I guess, but this is a little too, like, the show inverting on itself a little bit. It's like, Baltimore is a major city with millions of people in it. You're going to tell me that these people are really like the the son of the murderer that was you know put away by the team that President was a part of is now the teacher of like that seems that's something that would happen like in a small town like Mitchell or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it just seems a little bit like okay, really is that really what happened? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It was. Uh... 
It was interesting, I thought. No, no, it was good. I mean, yeah. storytelling-wise, it made a nice little package or whatever, but anyway. Um, but the kids, the larger issue of the kids. Yeah, no, the, the kids were good. I liked all the kid actors. They, they did a good job. You know, they they had the, uh, you know, what was uh, his name that he, he said he forms a bond with Dookie? Um, that, was, yeah. that was a good story arc. And then, um, oh, man, what was that one kid that, goes with Marlo and then uh, Chris Partlow beats that guy to a pulp. Well, that was a brutal brutal scene there. <laughs> but um yeah, that was god, that was a whole other thing. I mean, the this the show is just like, I mean, to talk about any one thing opens up mm-hmm. 5 to 10 other avenues to go down. And Michael is a character, he's an interesting character. Um well, there's that scene where uh, Marlo just hands out the money and then he doesn't take it. But then Marlo actually, you know, these lieutenants are getting mad, but, like, Marlo recognizes that it's because the kid has, like, you know, a head on his shoulders, and he wants to, like, try to, like, groom him to be part of their crew. And, you know, that that was an interesting scene for a lot of reasons, but, you know, that was, like, kind of the genesis of kind of Marlo's interest, I think, in, in this kid. So. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, Michael is a pretty complicated character. He's, like... He's in the group of kids. Mm-hmm. He's got some major homophobia issues as far as regarding Cuddy over at the, uh, and Cuddy's got his, uh, <laughs> okay. I just have to pause. Episode. We're going to mention Cuddy. I got to mention the scene, my favorite scene of the season with Cuddy, where he gives the speech to the kids about apologizing for like having like one night stands with all their moms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was pretty good. <laughs> anyway, go on. Yeah. Cuddy but I, is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think actually my favorite scene of the season was election morning mm. when Cuddy gets up and he, he puts on his Walkman. He's leaving a woman's house and she's like, Oh, it's going to be like that. You're just going to leave. He's like, I'll be back. And she's like, Oh, I see. It's going to be like that or something. Mm-hmm. He puts on a, puts on a Walkman and puts on, um, move on up, mm-hmm. which is a great song. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, just goes for a run and, while that while he's running, everybody else is going out to do elections and stuff, right? And he's mm-hmm. he's, he's a convicted felon; he can't vote. He's not politically aware, really, and stuff. But he's doing his thing, and the city of Baltimore is voting. And you know, it, the song kind of comes to an abrupt end when Carcetti comes out of the voting booth and stuff, and, mm-hmm. and it comes out that he's won. Yeah, I, that that scene is just I thought was yeah, yeah. you know well, I think I think we may have mentioned this before but but I was I know I was reading a little bit about the production of the wire and the creators were very conscious of the fact that no music in the show besides the end of se- uh, season montages is like piped in you know there's no like overlaid music it's yeah. all within the scene and that actually like it's a small thing but it's like something that really gives it that realism because it's like this is what the characters in the scene you're watching or listening to it puts you right where they are mm-hmm. and it's like it's a subtle thing and you wouldn't think about that normally because it's like not that big a deal you wouldn't think but actually it really helps like kind of place you in the moment and um i think that actually mm-hmm. makes and i honestly think i love the again i love the end of season montage and the song that went with it uh golden splinters or whatever um but that you know i almost think they could place any song in that slot and i would like feel 
like my heart would swell because like they've set you up for that. That is the only song that they pipe in in the entire season, and it's like you're you're kind of mm-hmm. trained to think this is like this is meaningful. Whatever we're gonna play right now, we really mean it because we haven't done it before, and we're really gonna do it now. So yeah, yeah, it's it's ex- the, the music is largely extremely effective, and yeah. That that yeah that song and that scene I think for me was was the one of the best ones of the season maybe one of the best ones of the show I agree yeah yeah and that scene with Waylon and Bubbles to go back to that was that just broke my heart he's like I don't want to feel you know like that like he's clean now this is what he's been running away from and you know this is exactly what Waylon told him it's like you're getting clean's the easy part and then you have to live with yourself it's life after that and it's like you know this is what he's gonna have to deal with now he's gonna have to realize that he has to kind of face what he's been running away from. So, yeah, and the the final straw, of course, for Bubbles was that he had been trying to make a hot shot to kill. Mm-hmm. There's been a guy who'd been robbing him every day while he was going around trying to make money selling T-shirts and stuff. And the guy was either taking drugs from him or money, and so he was putting some some hot shot, you know, dangerous drugs with poison in them mm-hmm. in his pockets, and he thought this guy was going to rough him up and take the drugs and stuff. And on that day, he didn't. And then on that day, he put his his coat down, and his his old friend uh, came back to his house, and like you you know, they'd had a falling out before, but the guy was going to live with him again and try to work on the job with him again where they're selling stuff and like but then that night i guess the other guy woke up through, during the night and rummaged through his pockets and found the drugs and uh, did mm-hmm. them and when bubbles woke up he was dead and that just like kind of sent bubbles over the edge because this was a you know it's kind of like johnny 2.0 mm-hmm. a, a person he was trying to bring up in the game and stuff and look out for and it didn't you know it he inadvertently killed him in a way and so Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it wouldn't have ever gotten to that point because somebody had told, like, Herc that he needed to get a CI. And so he's trying to work Bubbles as a CI. He gets information from Bubbles, but then he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. He ignores Bubbles' call when Bubbles is, like, needing him to come pick up this guy who's attacking him. Bubbles gets his ass kicked once or twice by the guy because Herc didn't show. And so then Bubbles, like, uh, tells him, okay. He, he Bubbles is walking by some church folk coming out of church on Sunday morning. And he's like, hey, you got some change to spare? And they're like, no. And so he just like he calls Herc and he's like, "Hey, I got I got one of Marlowe's drug dealers coming out now. He's in this nice car, and he gives them like the pastor's uh, plate number." And Herc, you know, of course, goes down there and you know is brutal, thinking he's got a drug dealer. And like he pulls out Bibles and stuff. He's like, "Huh, what's this?" And stuff. And of course, that's a this is a politically connected minister. I'm going to so go ahead and need your badge uh, number. <laughs> Yeah, Kirk. Of course, after he's lost, he's already lost like a four thousand dollar mic or, so, or camera or something. He attributed it to a uh, confidential informant that he didn't have. He pulled Marlo over when Marlo didn't have anything on him because Marlo had figured out that he was being watched and he wanted to test him. And so, you know, Herc, even though he had the good fortune of, you know, getting on the old mayor's good graces there at the beginning of the season, he's now through a series of just total incompetent things, he has uh, basically screwed himself in the department totally. And Marimo was going to fire him, basically, but then Marimo got fired. But now, again, Herc Herc gets taken away by uh, the uh, Internal Affairs IAD, I guess, um, at the end. And they want to know about his partners. He says, no, don't worry about the partners. It was all me. And so it looks like Herc's going down. 
And yeah. yeah, and so again, that's all connected to the fact. Well, partially, I mean, number one, his bad luck with cameras, but his bad police work, his bad work with the CI, his you know mistreating Bubbles, who you know McNulty and Kima have always generally done right by. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, so, so again, what do you think of the kids? Uh, we gotta, we gotta come back to the kids. There's, All right, the like, kids. There's yeah. Neiman Marcus. Or, um, there's Neiman. There's Michael. There's, uh, there's Neiman. I don't know if it's Marcus or not. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Neiman, Michael, uh, Dookie, um, Randy, and there's that one kid who always steals cars. I forget his <laughs> name. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like the kids. I thought it was good. I mean, it, it, a, a worse show would have, like, that's where the show would have fallen apart, I feel like. Because, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I feel like child actors are very iffy in, in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like they're not always used the best, even when they are good. And I, I thought it was, like, a strong way to kind of show the ground level of all this. Like, these kids, are they're just coming up. And I thought it was really exemplified by the fact when Bunny goes back to this, you know program that he's working in and he encounters uh that well they they tried like the older kids first and like there was that one kid that was like how old was that kid like 18 or something or 17 i forget yeah yeah and then it was just like the the the, the brick wall is up you know like this kid is who he is you're not going to change anything but like if you're going to make any difference in these kids life you have to get them somewhat younger than this so you know it kind of showed that they're still like they're still squishy around the edges they're still learning the ways of the world and how who they want to be in the world and you know they're not really hardened yet so i thought they really exemplified that I, I thought that was that was kind of the scene that i kind of unlocked why we need to yeah. see these kids so yeah I, I love that part where they've got the yeah the 18 year old guy is in the questioning thing and they're trying to like psychoanalyze him and they're like what would you do if some you know yeah, your sister somebody <laughs> mistreated your sister he's like He's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, but what would you do? He's like, well, which sister? Because if it's this one, she probably had it coming. And you're like, well, the other one. And he's like, fuck you. Or something. And, like, and then he grabs his pen and like, he takes it and stuff. And the other guy dashes out of the thing. And, and Buddy just says to him, like, thanks for being you. <laughs> thanks for being yourself. Because <laughs> he's like, he was trying to prove a point by bringing this guy to him or something. So, mm-hmm. And then, the, you know, the college professor that they're doing the program with is kind of, you know, Smart obviously has a program in mind and stuff, but doesn't really know as much as funny about what the mm-hmm. you know the situation he's walking into. So. Right, right. But yeah, so they so they started they set up a separate program to take the bad kids out of the class and you know try to do some other therapies with them and stuff to make them at least be able to interact with the teachers in a productive way most of the time and also give the other regular students chance in class to study, which is something that, you know, and I was curious about this because they talked about it. I took some notes about it somewhere in here that they said that this was kind of like tracking, right? You're you're tracking the students. Um, Mm -hmm. If you take the, if you take the students out that you have low expectations for then that's kind of like, not fair to them or something and it's you know frowned upon in educational circles or whatever mm-hmm. but i'm like as a teacher i'm like 
but it's fucking true. It's like, well, it's you know, basically like, it's like, like I heard, it's a very truism I heard once in, when I was in school. It was like, yeah, as a teacher, basically what happens is you spend most of your time worrying about the 10% of kids that are on the very bottom and just causing trouble and they're not getting it and they don't want to get it. And then you're also like trying to keep the ones at the very top interested and you're basically forgetting the mm-hmm. 80% in the middle who just want to like, you know, they're, they're just there to learn and you're not, you don't have any time left for them because you're basically trying to keep these two groups. You're trying to keep these two balls in the air at all times. So, yep. It's, 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 you know, I know it's, you know, even in Korea too, like people want to keep everybody at the same age, even if some of them never studied, they don't know shit. They're way behind in level. They can't speak. And the other students are answering the questions in about five seconds. It's like, we got to keep them together. They're the same age. It would hurt their self-esteem if we put them with lower level students. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, but they're not really learning. They're not letting anybody else learn. Mm-hmm. It's not good for them. It's not good for the other students. It's it's just like, you know, it's a saving face issue where, and, you know, I'm not saying that because it's in Asia, but like, because we do it in America too, obviously. Like, sure. You know, well, what do they, what do the principal call it or whatever when you've been something? You've been promoted. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, that's, and so I, I thought it was a, good program i think it was you know kind of another one of uh uh david Simon's, uh you know kind of thought experiments as far as what if we did this in the schools instead of like keeping all these people together and it's like yeah this might actually work and i think it would but it seems like there's some sort of an entrenched uh thing within educational theory against it so mm-hmm. yeah that was that was interesting um yeah, so so anyways, well Randy. Randy is a character. Randy Randy Wagstaff is actually Cheese Wagstaff's son. Did you get that? Who's Randy again? Which one is he? Smith and Randy. He's one of the, oh, oh no, I didn't get that. Huh. Yeah, that's that's Cheese Wagstaff's son. No, I did not get that. You know, of course throughout the whole it's it's no spoiler to say that throughout this season, throughout season five too. Cheese never meets his son. They never, they never have a scene together. Hmm. But yeah. So I mean, we we see Cheese with Prop Joe, Prop mm-hmm. Joe's nephew, and then Randy is his uh, son. But Randy's living in a. I don't know if he's living in what do you call it? He's got a foster mom, something Miss Anna or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Randy is a, you know, obviously hard of gold, always running scams, trying to make money here and there and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, always willing to, you know, let little information go to get himself out of trouble, which ends up, you know, majorly biting him in the ass by the end of the season. Sure, especially when he's in the group home. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think at the beginning, Basically, Bodie's crew has been told that he has to get with Marlo. Oh, right? Bodie. And yeah, we got to talk about Bodie. Marlo, we gotta he's talk got about a guy Bodie. named Little Kevin with him. Huh? I said we got to talk about Bodie, but go on. <laughs> Bodie, yeah. Wow. I mean, another guy who has an arc, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, like, I, obviously in season one when he kills Wallace, we're pissed, right? He's an asshole. He's killed his, one of his best friends just to, you know, 
I don't know. It's it's messed up. Well, and then I like the scene and with him and uh, what's his name, Poot, where they're like after little Kevin gets killed because they went and told him to go see Marlo, and yeah. like he's like, yeah, but you yeah, thought you I, had to kid kill Wallace, and he's like, yeah, it's kind of the same thing, and like, <laughs> yeah, I, I took notes on that scene because that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Hold on, where do I? Sorry, right, we sorry, we were talking about Randy. I've got, I've got binders full of women over here. <laughs> Mitt Romney ref. Oh yeah. Yeah. So when yeah he and Poot are talking about that when they when they take little Kevin's body out of the out of the uh, out of the vacant. Mm-hmm. Poot says, "I mean, yo, you got to look at it from Marlowe's point of view. I mean, how this is different from Wallace." And uh, Bodie says, "Because Stringer said Wallace snitched." And Poot says, "Yo, Kevin might have snitched too." Mm-hmm. Um, and Marlo said, or Bodie says, man, but he didn't. And we had to do Wallace. And I think that that was the moment where we know, and maybe on some subconscious level, Bodie knows maybe they didn't have to do Wallace. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And Poot says, yo, Marlo thought he had to do Kevin. And Poot, uh, and Bodie says, man, but he didn't. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. He's a cold motherfucker. Yeah. And it's like, that's you know wow yeah i mean yeah. that is that's that's shakespearean right there yeah. right i mean like he's 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 weaving around a point that he doesn't know he's making and he's talking about somebody else and yet it applies just as much to himself i mean that was wow yeah, yeah that, that was, i like that scene too that was really good um i really liked every scene with him and mcnulty but i also completely blame mcnulty for him getting killed yeah I mean, because, like, I, I like uh, when they're at the diner or the, the, the shop, or the sandwich shop, and, like, he, McNulty sits down, and it's obvious they both, like, respect each other on some level, and it's like, you know, he, as he says in that final scene when they go to the courtyard or whatever, you're a soldier, bo- Bodie, you know, like, like he, re- he recognizes that they're, they're part of this larger game, they're trying to do what they can within the structures they work in, they're on opposite sides, but it's really like it couldn't be any other way, really, but, like, at the same time, Bodie's, like, looking around, like I cannot be seen with you, dude. Like I don't care how you know cool you think we are with each other. You know, on on a personal level, like if anyone sees this, like it's not gonna look good for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then somebody, yeah, somebody did see him, and they reported it to Marlowe, and Marlowe sends Chris and Snoop, and I, I wasn't sure if the guy who shot him was Michael or if that was somebody else. Actually, I, I kind of like I couldn't I couldn't really tell who that was, was, to be honest. Because like they they had dis- they discussed when Marlowe ordered them to kill Bodie, um, he said put that young one on it or something. And they're like, well, you know, he used to work with Bodie, so the first time it shouldn't be somebody that he knows. He has to kill somebody he doesn't know first, and then he'll be okay. But but then like Chris and Snoop are kind of like coming up the block, just kind of like left and right, left and right, you know. And he's shooting at both of them, and then somebody else, you know, steps out from behind and shoots him in the back of the head. He put me one of those vacants. Was that Michael? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean he. I don't know. It's it must have been it must have been a frustrating life for Bodie because at the end of the day. Barksdale's in jail and he had to hold the corner by himself and he thought he could do that by being on Marlo's team and at the end of the day 
Stephen that couldn't save him and he got killed by Marlo. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Well, it was like he when he was talking to McNulty, he's like, you know, Bodie never lost a count. Bodie, you know, never never came up short. And Bodie always did what he had to do. And still, you know, like, it's like, yeah, it's like the the game is rigged. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a mess. That was too bad to see him die after you know he's been for four seasons and stuff. But no, oh, absolutely. But again, I, I think I said last episode. Like I think I said this by the end of you know as kind of like some you know by the end of it, we're going to be feeling almost reminiscent for the Barksdale crew because this Marlowe thing is just so depraved, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Barksdale thing was really depraved too. Actually, looking back on it, but like we have this kind of like this nostalgia for all these characters who were in the Barksdale crew, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I mean, like that's the, that, see, but that's the thing about yeah. the old days. They the old days. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. As Slim Charles put it. So. <laughs> Yeah, Slim Charles continues to be a, a you know a very solid actor in every scene he's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was at one point I think there was a point where the McNulty's kids were playing video game. No, no, no. It was Naaman was playing video games. He'd come home and he was playing video games. He comes home, he turns on his Xbox or something, and he boots up, uh, and immediately he's shooting right away. And it says, on the bottom of the screen, it says Halo 2. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is some bullshit. This is a bullshit transition to a video game because you don't just turn on the Xbox and the game is playing immediately and you're shooting. you, you got to go through like, oh, uh, you know, oh, this is, uh, you know, 341 or whatever that, you know, whoever made Halo, I forget what they I mean, like, you got to go through the loading screens and shit, and then you got to <laughs> sign in, you got to load your game, and then you got to, you know, go through your checkpoint and stuff. And, uh-huh. and I'm like, this is bullshit. As a gamer, I'm like, come on. Okay, David Simon, this is not part of your wheelhouse. <laughs> Whatever. This is breaking up the realism. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we lost the Mizine scene, I think. Yeah. <laughs> at that moment. It's all right, David Simon. We forgive you. you yeah, did, you did so much else good. Yeah, we, we can we can forgive your occasional trespass. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I made a note also at one point. Um, Roy said to Carcetti, "It's easy enough to write letters when all you're required to do is write letters." And I, you know, he's obviously corrupt and everything and stuff, but he's kind of right because I mean, Carcetti had no idea about the budget shortfall and stuff, and so mm-hmm. you know the things that he was actually asking you know, uh, Royce to allocate funds for may not have been possible in the last season. So it's, you know, just, you know, everything from the beginning of the show informs the later parts of the show. And then everything from the later parts kind of reinforms you about the things that you saw before. And it's just like, yeah, it's just, there's so many layers. Mm-hmm. Carcetti and Tony Gray, Carcetti totally screwed Tony Gray. Uh, and yet he needed to, to get, to be the mayor. Mm-hmm. Split the black, uh, black vote. Yeah, it was cynical, but it it worked. Um, yeah. What did you think of uh, seeing Omar goes to the store? I forget which episode it was. At the beginning of the episode, Omar wakes up in the morning. And, you know, there's some full frontal male nudity. He puts on a bathrobe. He goes to the store. He comes out and has a cigarette. And somebody drops their drugs right next to him when he probably wasn't even thinking about that, and he just goes home. 
I almost feel like, wasn't that just saying that he thought it was just too easy? Like, it's like he's just such a feared character that people are just willing to throw their stuff at him without even, you know, a fight. Yeah. So it's like he needed the challenge of, like, robbing, you know, Marlowe or Prop Show or whatever. Well, I think he robbed Marlowe. Number one, he robbed Marlowe at the card game where Marlowe was trying to screw himself by learning how to play poker or whatever with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, he robbed Marlowe there because Prop Joe had put him on that game. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, Prop Prop Joe is playing games within games, right? I mean, like Prop Joe is like um, Marlowe is not part of the co-op. And I need to show Marlo that I have advanced information about things that are going down so that he realizes he needs to join the co-op so he can get that information. And so I'm going to send Omar to rob the game that he plays at that I know about. And he can't trace it back to me. But then, like, when he comes to me, I'm going to tell him, oh, I knew that thing was going to get hit. I didn't know you were going to be there. If you were part of the co-op, I would have told you don't go to that game or something. <laughs> like, now, does, does, yeah, does Marlo later join the co-op? Because when they have that store owner who was supposed to say it was Marlo that killed that woman who then recants, so then, like, they give him up to Snoop and Chris Bartlow. So is Marlo part of the co-op at that point? Is that why he did that? I'm not really clear. I think he's. I think by the end of the season, he's kind of halfway in. Hmm. But yeah, he's, he's definitely got one foot in, one foot out. Because like uh, Prop Joe yeah. was like, oh well, that's part of what it means to be in the co-op is that we, you know, look out for each other, and then like we're supposed. You're supposed <laughs> I did feel bad for that store owner, but it was kind of funny. It was like, oh, I thought you were going to bring me up north. He's like, yeah, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Slim Charles. Yeah, that was yeah, that was messed up because like the store owner gave him his store for two thousand dollars and a ticket on the bus, which is mm-hmm. obviously not what a store would ever be worth. And then to add insult to injury, like he's being driven out of town by Chris Bartlow or no, by Slim Charles, and then Slim Charles hands him off to Chris and Snoop. And it's like, wow, the fix was in from the beginning on him. Mm-hmm. I guess I think Marlowe was in the co op because he was killing the New York people for them. And, um, you know, we had the almost comical scene where Chris and Snape were walking up the street and they're like, how are we going to know these guys are from New York? And it's like, well, ask them about something that only Baltimore people wouldn't know about. And it's like, like what? And he's like, well, how about like, you know, this, this one musician on this one radio station or the, the people on this morning show in the radio station that everybody knows about. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. And she asked that guy that thing. And then he says something like, you mean this person? And she pulls the gun. I was like, no, 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 that person's on the show too. And she's like, I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> And then they go up to that other person and they're like, I forget what they say. They say the song lyrics, who, 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 who sing that da 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 da? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm asking who would this person be? He's like, oh, for real? And they're like, they shoot him and it's like, whoa. And then, like, you know, Prop Joe had to tell them, like, you got to stop putting these bodies in the, in the vacant houses because, like, New York's not getting the message because they don't know where the people are going. You got to leave them in the street. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll do that then. Yeah, I did like the scene where they were like, ask him something only somebody from Baltimore would know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, yeah. Chris and Snoop, what, I mean, what about those two? Those two are, wow, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, yeah, they're pretty far gone. It's hard to see the humanity in them anymore. But I did think, you know, the fact that they beat that one guy to the pulp obviously was be it was implying that Chris Portlow had some experience with being, you know, molested or whatever in in his youth that he would be taking it out by beating this guy to death with his bare hands. And I guess that was somewhat commendable. But it's like you've seen him do all these other horrible things. So it's kind of like, well, I don't know. Kind of seem, still seem yeah. like a bad person, but I guess I see partially maybe how you got that way. I don't know. So. Yeah, well, Chris, like Chris, is a strange character. I mean, he's he's very calm, like mm-hmm. pretty much all the time, except that one time. Oh, that was so cold when that guy was throwing up, and he was like, "Don't worry, I got you, man." And he was like so calm, and he's like shoots him in the head, and oh, that was yeah. That's like that. That was the weird thing too. When whenever he was taking somebody to kill them, like in the in the the uh, vacant houses, it was just very impersonal, very businesslike, not angry, very businesslike. And he's just like he almost made them feel like he was doing them a favor. He's like, "Don't worry, I got you, I got you. I'm gonna make it fast. Don't worry, like you know." Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. I got your, you know, I'm on your side and stuff. And, and just like right to the moment he shoots him in the head and stuff. And Snoop is obviously a total psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, off the chain most of the time. But, you know, she seems to mind Chris when he's, what he's doing and stuff. He's, it's just the two of them together. Just like, and, and like somebody said at some point that Chris Partlow always wears country clothes or something. They said, like his, Hmm. His clothing style is kind of like he's wearing a lot of flannel and stuff, and it was just like it was. You, you kind of, you almost feel like there could be more backstory to him. Like, what's his story? Like, why is he not dressing like everybody else? You know, why is he like this? It does seem like he may have gotten raped in prison or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I mean, there was, yeah, those two were just, yeah, something else. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I like when they're like just yeah. hanging out, and he's like that that lean with it, rock with it song goes on. And he's like, yeah, that's my jam, and I'm like, oh yeah, I like that song too. Wait a minute, this guy's a serial killer. I shouldn't feel good about this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that might have been the song they asked the New York guys about. Yeah, who who does that lean with it, rock with it? And he's like, I don't know. And he's like, bro, I'm asking who this person be. And he's like, oh, and they shoot him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about the scene where Marlo, another big major scene, you know, major one-liner, I think, from The Wire was Marlo goes into the Korean convenience store and he steals some candy when he knows the black security guard is watching him. Mm-hmm. And then the black security guard confronts him outside and he's like, I'm not stepping to you, but why you got to do that? This is my job. I got a family to support and stuff. And, you know, it's hard enough. I don't like working here. And he's like, and he goes, you know, you want it one way. He's like, what? What are you saying? He's like, you want it one way. He's like, stop saying that. He's like, you want it one way, but it's the other way. Mm-hmm. And then, like a couple scenes later, he has that guy killed. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, that was total, a good, that was a yeah, good line. Insanity. Yeah, I forget. I forget who said it. Might have been Poot. Uh, it was like, world's going one way, people another, or whatever. I like that line too. Yeah. Um, another fun fun line was when uh, when uh, Bubs's friend was not going to school the way he was supposed to be going, and he said, "Why weren't you in school today?" He's like, "Well, I was sick, or it's a half day, or something." He's like, "He said I'd unheard, made up, and tested every every excuse known to man, every excuse invented." 
It's like, yeah, that sounds right for bubs. <laughs> oh, ah, I just found the the Sidner, the the black cop named Sidner. Uh, there's the oh, yes, the the white cop and the black cop that we we can never remember. Mm-hmm. It was Sidner mm-hmm. and the other guy was Dozerman, right? Yes. So those those are the two who've always kind of been there, but we just don't really know them very well, and they kind of like seem like extras almost. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, I think Bunk and Freeman had a pretty hilarious night out at one point. I don't remember what they did exactly. Probably neither do they. Mm-hmm. I, I think like Freeman was probably being serious and Bunk was probably trying to get laid or something. <laughs> yeah. I think I know which scene you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, let's see. Yeah, I think they said, okay, they said about the students, they said, that's tracking, tracking students. It's a nasty phrase in educational circles. I think that's what they said about Mm -hmm. that. Um, Let's see, Randy snitching. Let's see, they had the kids had a zombie conspiracy where they said that Chris was walking people into the into the vacants, killing them and then turning them into zombies and stuff. And they had this, this thing about zombies and Dookie was like the one who knew, no, no, he, he's like, he's just killing them. They're just dead. Mm-hmm. Like I saw one of the bodies or something and they're like, no, I think they're zombies. Then they had like a, a crackhead walk by or something and like scared the hell out of them. They all ran away. Yeah, I did like that scene. Yeah. Um, I thought it was not- notable how many times people find the bodies and the vacants and then they just go about their day afterwards. <laughs> like, they had the, uh, you yeah. know, that scene where they were like, no, you're just dead. You're not a zombie. That scene, that, that guy probably laid in there for another few weeks. And then uh, when uh, Lester Freeman's like, I bet dollars to donuts any, you know, vacant with one of these in them has a body in it. Okay, let's check. And then they go check and they're like, all right, we're not going to call this in. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's you know it's you know police malpractice basically because sure. the sooner you find the body the better chances you're going to have of solving the murder but mm-hmm. you know from from on up the chain of command it was just malpractice i thought that that scene with the kids finding the body was a very kind of stephen king-esque yep. thing right stand like, by I mean, me like stand by me or something mm-hmm. which i haven't seen i haven't read but like i'm aware of the story or something some kids find a body and how that affects them or something and so it's like yeah that was interesting. You should write the back of the box uh, synopsis. <laughs> Kids find a body, it affects them or something. I don't know, just watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's Stephen King, bitches. <laughs> you know how many movies and books he's written and directed or whatever. Exactly. But, um... Let's see, we had a we had the episode Margin of Error where Naaman's mom, Wee wife, gets cut off by uh Brianna. Mm-hmm. Uh they've they've gotten some money from the bark sales, but she says there's no more money to be gotten. She's like, my husband's you know, he's got some stories he could tell and she's like, Well, you know, he probably won't or something and so then Naaman's mom sends Naaman out on the street and says, You gotta get to work for real, you know, you need to go back to Bodie, get a package and you need to support me here. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously like, I don't know, not a great mom moment, perhaps. Yeah. Kind of in the tradition of, uh, what's his name's mom? The <laughs> D'Angelo's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, she she she's kind of a she seemed really nice at times because like her son came home from school and she told him she wasn't going to give him any money, but then he went upstairs and he found all these like nice clothes laid out for him and stuff. And just like, mm-hmm. you know, you think my son's not going to go to school looking like himself or something like mm-hmm. that? She's really looking out for her son, but at the same time, like when the time comes, she really expects her son to step up and you know provide for her in the way that her husband had and be the, the drug dealer that she it. always knew he could be. <laughs> And, uh, but at the same time, she did some bad stuff. Like, like one time the kids would all come over to her son's house to join him and she like blocked Dookie at the door and closed the door on him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, and her son was kind of bullying Dookie, which was not pretty, um, mm-hmm. behavior. Um, I mean, Naaman is a character, like, I don't know. He, yeah, obviously Bunny sees something in it by the end of the season. Well, that's one thing I wanted to mention and to go back to Presbolewski, um, you know, he, uh, he has that conversation with the, uh, the principal, like, you know, there's going to be another dookie after him and you're going to need your attention too. And that's true. And that's one of the things that really killed me about being a teacher is like, even if you like, feel like you make a connection or you like, you can, you can make, you know, some difference in these kids' lives. You only have them for a certain amount of time of the day. And even then they're going to go on to another grade and you're not going to see them again after that really. And, you know, you can't, you can't be with them 24 hours a day unless you literally do what bunny did and like adopt them and it's like you can't do that with everybody and it's 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 hard you know because it's like if you want to make a difference in people's lives there's there's a limit to that if you're a teacher you know you can you can have that positive impact but you can't go home and make sure their clothes aren't being stolen forever you know so yeah and i thought that scene was kind of interesting too like from a relationship perspective too like i mean you could hook up with a girl you could date a girl for a little while but you know, you're not going to have a lasting impact in her life unless you, you know, marry that girl. And if you marry that girl, there's going to be a whole bunch of girls after that who you're not going to affect, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I mean, people come and go through our lives, and you know, if you, you, I don't know, you just gotta like if you if you if you settle on one of them that you're going to adopt or marry or you know whatever form some sort of friendship with or something. You're you're closing the door on other things, or you gotta let that one go and you know keep doing your job basically mm-hmm. or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was an interesting scene on different levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, Snitch and Randy. He gets in trouble. He tells about the body of uh, what's his name. Little Kevin, I think he tells the police about that, and through the incompetence of Hurricane Carver, they let it be known to somebody else, to Little Kevin, that Randy was snitching mm-hmm. or something, and he goes back to, you know, he goes back to uh, Marlowe at Bodie and Poop's advice and gets himself killed almost immediately. And that pisses, obviously, Bodie off and sets that whole thing in motion. But at the same time, it betrays Randy. And and people in Marlowe's crew start talking to the students at the middle school who start ostracizing Randy and calling him snitching Randy and stuff, and, mm-hmm. which leads to the firebombing of his house where he's supposed to have a police protection unit there. But obviously the police are like, you know, the people who are watching the house make a phone call and they say, oh, my God, you know, there's this police officer under fire over here. He's, he's getting shot up and stuff. And these people just, like, put on their siren and drive away immediately because that's, you know, obviously their number one priority. But the fact that the criminals know that makes them manipulable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
so then they firebomb the house, and it sounds like Miss Anna goes has got you know severe burns, and Randy's got a little bit of burn damage and stuff, and he's got to go to a foster care, or he's got to go to a group home, basically. So yeah, and you know that had kind of come about because he had he had told the principal that he knew about a body after he'd been a lookout boy for some older students sleeping with another female student at the middle school that mm-hmm. turned into a rape situation and. He tried to bargain his way out of that problem by saying, I know where a body is. So she told that to the police, and then she got them hooked up with the police. And, mm-hmm. and by the end of the thing, you know, uh, Prez Belusky is like telling him, you know what, I used to be a police officer, and I would have told you to talk to the police, but at this point I can see how that plays in the community here and what the consequences of that are. And right now I'm going to say, don't say anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And the police come there, and they're like, why'd you tell them not to talk to us? He's like, well, I just told them that because, like, that's, you know, you guys obviously can't protect them. And mm-hmm. so... I, mean, I think I think Freeman, and, isn't uh, it Freeman that comes to talk to him when, they, when he says that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think Freeman understands, but I think uh, Bonk is, is not quite as understanding. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, that was a, another part of the arc of, uh, the arc of uh, Um I think one thing that, I don't know, it's like, it's something that you just kind of lose track of in this, is that these kids are all just in middle school, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's this idea, I think, like, you know, in the world that, uh, a lot of people see black children as being older than they actually are, right? And oh, yeah, I see that. I mean, I even recognize that myself, in. too. I, I definitely had to keep reminding myself that these were middle schoolers. Um, especially when, yeah. uh, remember that one kid that was obviously, like, in elementary school that was on the corner? Who was that one kid? Oh, yeah. Uh, was he, he like, Naaman made him his lieutenant just mm-hmm. so that the kid would bottle the vials at his mm-hmm. own house or something, and then the kid ended up stealing from him and mm-hmm. stuff. And then Michael ended up beating him up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that, I mean, it's messed up. Yeah, I mean, these guys are young as hell. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. They, I, they don't feel like middle schoolers to me at times, and at times they do. And I guess part of that is because they're wearing kind of uniforms, which we never had in, obviously, middle school, elementary mm-hmm. school, high school, never right. had. Korea has it, but mm-hmm. but it's like, you, I mean, you really think about how messed up the whole situation with uh, with Marlowe is that he's, or you know, any of them, I guess that mm-hmm. they're putting these people on the corner because, like, when I think about what I was doing in middle school, right. like, not even comparable. I, you know, I was not cut out for anything like this. No. I was not in this situation, and to have to, to to be training like a Michael character, like a seventh or eighth grader, to be an assassin in your drug crew. I mean, that's that's some. You know, you watch the show and everything seems sort of like in the game, in the world or whatever. And then you, you really think about how fucked up that is. Mm-hmm. And it's just really fucked up, right? It's like, Well, I mean, it's just like child soldiers in Rwanda, basically, at that point. It's like we're playing war games with these paintball guns so you can see how to, like, kill someone faster and more efficiently. So. <laughs> yeah. I thought that, 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 that beginning, that intro scene mm-hmm. was really cheap, though. I've got to say that was a cheap scene because... They make you, you know, think it's real, Michael and then running. you see this paint, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got Michael running. You've got Snoop and Chris chasing him into the building. He's got a gun. They've got guns. 
He shoots them. Red paint goes everywhere. You think it's blood. And then you're like, oh, boy, these guns sure do look real, don't they? Yeah, they look just like real guns. Come on. Mm -hmm. Nobody makes paintball guns that look like real guns like that, that, to my knowledge. Certainly not in 1999, 2002, 2004, whenever this was, that this season was made. Like... You know, they they don't, number one, they don't make it because of the safety hazard. Because obviously, like, if the police have rolled by when these kids are running around in the neighborhood with toy guns out, they're going to get killed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and number two, paintballs come in all kinds of different colors. They don't just come in red. So I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they, like, I don't know. What well, that is, was the cheapest I, possible I version like, of what we talked about before with those opening scenes, how they kind of throw you into a scenario and don't really explain it. But, like, they don't, they, this was, like, intentional trickery at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like they, I'm okay with it in a normal situation, but I just feel like they had to bend too many, it's kind of like the video game scene. It's just like, it seems like he was talking about something he didn't really know about, and he was doing it for dramatic purposes to make you think that for some reason Chris and Snoop were trying to kill Michael. Mm-hmm. And so he made it look like real guns and made it look like real blood and made it look like a real chase scene. It's kind of, come on, that's, that's, it's just one scene. I get it, but it just felt a little bit cheap and a little bit like, you know, he didn't really earn that one. I don't feel like it seemed seemed a little off to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I did paintball through high school and like the paintball guns don't look anything like a gun. Like, I, I'm not sure if the police have some sort of paintball gun that looks exactly like a gun and somehow it feeds the paintball from inside the gun rather than having a hopper on top or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's possible that they have something like that, but I've never seen it. <laughs> Even up until now. And I, I don't really keep up with paintball anymore, but I, I, until now, I've never seen a paintball gun like that. So I'm not entirely sure. Either. I don't know. But, but yeah, it's a, it's a small gripe. It's a very small gripe. <laughs> there was a great scene uh, in the uh, in the troubled kids learning special class thing, where that one young kid had said, "I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon," like that one Ben Carson, yeah. an African American male. What's his name? And Bunny says, "Ben Carson." <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, that dude." <laughs> and then the the other guy says, "He's a he's a black surgeon at Hopkins with a lot of profile." like... <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, and then late, I was like, how did, I mean, I guess he was from Baltimore maybe, right? Is that the story? Was he? I don't know. I mean, I know, I know he was a neurosurgeon that separated conjoined twins or whatever, but yeah. And then there was later scene when Bunk comes to Beatty and McNulty's house and he's trying to get McNulty to drink and everything. And he said, um, what do your kids want to do? They want to be cops like you. And he's like, no, I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to be a rock star or something, you know, dweeds. And then like, um, and McNulty's like, well, what do your sons want to do? He's like, oh, they're still in that, they're going through that neurosurgeon phase or something. And it's like, damn, how many shots at Ben Carson is, uh, is this guy going to take in this season? You know, it's, Oh, like, did he know something about Ben Carson at that point that we didn't know, or did he actually think? Well, he he wrote Ben Carson. I know wrote a book like I forget it was like Gentle Hands or I for some autobiography that was apparently like very God popular. Yeah, very popular in the black community because it was obviously kind of what they're saying. It's like you can aspire to be this too. Like he did it, and you know whatever yeah, he, he stabbed, stabbed somebody as a child or whatever he said in the night. book. <laughs> Yeah, he tried to kill his own mother with a Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
and now he's the the head of HUD. You can do it too. Politician trying to buy a thirty thousand dollar like bedroom suite or something for his office. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I just thought it was hilarious because like that was something that I didn't even notice the first two times I watched this show because I didn't really know who Ben Carson was at that point. So that was definitely a throwback. (laughs) That was a good callback there. So I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, when when yeah when Herc and Doberman pulled over Chris and Snoop, and that was just like, wow. Yeah, the um, you know, two pretty incompetent cops dealing with a couple of cold-blooded killers, and they don't know, you know, they don't fully correctly search the van. They don't, you know, know what they're looking for. He takes out the nail gun and he like shoots one right next to the Snoop's leg into the ground, into the pavement, and it stays there or something, and it's like, and then they just let him go or whatever, because mm-hmm. they don't find the gun. Yeah, they don't see the stash box or whatever. And then later, like, um, I think when Freeman is kind of debriefing Herc or something, he's, he's like, he's Herc is all about the uh, internal affairs complaints. And he's like talking about that. And he's like, I can't believe they got me on this This bullshit or something. He's like, so you pulled over Christmas thing. He's like, yeah. And he's like, and he saw the nail gun. He's like, yeah, I I fired a nail right next to the Dane's leg. It's like, gee, I wonder how you got these IAD complaints, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No one understands him, but his woman. (laughs) Yep. I'm not sure he's even got one of those. Come on, wasn't he at the movies with somebody? <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, we see Kima meet up with her, her ex-girlfriend who's got the son, and mm-hmm. you know, Kima brings her the money because she's getting better money at the, at the homicide department, and she's given the money, and she's feeling good, and then she meets Kima's new girlfriend and mm-hmm. stuff, and they, she sees that like there's no going back. Kind of, she kind of has a McNulty moment with her ex mm-hmm. there. It's kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, I, I liked it when, um, uh, I, I thought it was a very funny scene when Coquetti wants to fire Burrell. He's like, well, I can't fire him. And they're like, well, can you, you try to shame him or something? And he's like, uh, and, you know, almost immediately, I mean, Burrell is obviously not a great police commander, but he's like, he's he's got a political mind, and he's like, he senses intuitively right away, like, he's like, I won't quit. You have to fire me. <laughs> he's like, well, I, I'm not going to fire you. He's like, okay, well, then I'm starting my vacation right now since you've got, uh, since you got Rawls doing my job for me, it's like, wow. Yeah. This guy can't be shamed. You can't shame him into quitting his job. Nope. He knows he's got, you know, the power to keep his job basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, that was interesting. At one point, Michael, one of the kids was really depressed or something. And you know, his, his, his younger brother's dad had come back. The guy who seems to have maybe molested him as a younger boy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I thought it was interesting at that moment that Dookie recommends several things that could have helped him. I mean, we 
you know, we have this feeling that there's no help for these kids. And Dookie recommends like a school social worker. And they're like, no, no, he's an alcoholic. And he says, Mr. Cresbo. And then he says, there's Cuddy at the mm-hmm. boxing gym. And he's like, no, he's, he, he, he uh, you know, he's too friendly. Everybody's too friendly and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, and, you know, Dookie kind of had a point. I mean, there are several places in the community that Michael theoretically could have gone to. And, you know, Michael has his own blinders on regarding, you know, people who may or may not be able to help yeah stuff, so. but even what's his name uh randy was like no he'd be all up in the women <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you know things could have probably gone a lot different for michael if he would have just uh understood cuddy better yeah he's all about the ladies oh yeah if we, if, if we know anything about the cuddy <laughs> <laughs> yeah although you know i mean the scene, i think they did a good job of like kind of like playing it where you can kind of see michael's thing like when when cuddy takes the two boys to go watch the the fight and then he's driving them home and mm-hmm. you get the feeling immediately that like he drops the one boy off first and like michael's like no i'll get off here i'll get off here it's like no man it's like six blocks or something to your house i'll get off here i'm good it's like, yeah, I mean, from his perspective, you can kind of see the situation like this guy could be kind of grooming them or something, mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a little bit over familiar or something to be taken over this event or something. Yeah. But you can almost see it from his side. But at the same time, we have a better understanding of Cuddy and his predilections. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of an unfortunate misunderstanding, I think. Yeah, for sure. That was interesting. Daniel uh, Daniels's and Perlman's uh, optimism regarding the Carcetti, the promise of a new administration, the, the idea that things would not be too fucked up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, teaching to the test, uh, teaching Greek mythology in the hood, um, the language and cultural barrier as far as, you know, he's trying to explain like, okay, this person saved his friend, you know, these ancient Greek stories and stuff. And these people are just like not getting it, not, not understanding the language, not understanding the people, not understanding the motivation, not understanding the message. And yet we know people like Omar later can cite these kinds of stories. And this is something that he really appreciated. So, mm-hmm. um, the troubled kids in class is fancy dinner. Uh, yeah. What did you think yeah. Of that? I like that. That was good. Out of place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I forget. I forget the woman, the girl's name that was with him. Um, Zenobia, maybe or something. Mm-hmm. But she, like, you know, Naaman kind of halfway was trying to act right. The other kid was, you know, they were all a little scared. But like the two boys were kind of fucking around, and she was, you know. She had taken the time to do her hair. She was trying to act as best as she could in the public situation, which was obviously a very uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was interesting. And then they talked about it. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Bunny and the professor talked about it. And he said, this plummet from masters of the universe to abject fear, to humiliated fury and, and, um, and this unawareness and no awareness of it. Mm-hmm. He said, who says they're not aware? Maybe they just don't, didn't acknowledge. He says, uh, how you get them to believe in themselves if they can't even admit their feelings about who they are and what they're doing in this world. Hmm. 
I, I thought that was an interesting scene because I think we've all been in situations where we feel like we don't fit in or something mm-hmm. or like, you know, we feel like the people around us are of a different social strata and we just can't act right around them. Right. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes maybe it's a blind date or something like that. Like you just, you, you, you want to fit in with this person, but it's just not working and stuff. And you just go through all these, this range of emotions. Right. Yeah. That was, a, that was a good scene. I thought, yeah. Um, questions about socialization before education. Is it a good idea? Again, that's kind of that educational stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a statement, um, a patrolling officer on his beat is the one true dictatorship in America. That was, that was a good line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty true. Even, um, even more true now. So. Yeah, let's see. Uh, we did the boating poop part. Um, let's see. The the bad policing by the new administration, quality of life violations, people, you know. Yeah, broken that point, broken windows like policing. The, yeah, the revenge of the Sith via Burrell, right? He was like, you know, we're going to give stats to this new mayor, and he's going to appreciate. I couldn't tell if he was trying to piss off the mayor or if he was actually trying to give him something to show that he could still do his job. Right. But obviously, it backfired in both cases. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm racing towards the end here. Um, oh, oh boy, a couple of jokes. I mean, uh, cheese, cheese Wagstaff. <laughs> <laughs> there's one scene it's just like a cold open into this scene where he's in the in the shop with like little charles or something and uh slim charles and uh and cop joe and he says you know who got the fattest asses and the best pussy so he says who that he says midgets um playing for an african-american male <laughs> it's like wow <laughs> that that was funny <laughs> that was, like that was the delivery was perfect the timing was perfect that was just a ridiculous thing to say <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that was that was great i think there was another um and then after cheese was at the at the uh the drug drop the major drug drop that got robbed by omar and his crew he said, I mean, he had this one hoe pulling guns out her pussy, Unc. That shit was unseemly, man. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite true, but it, it sort of happened like that. But it's like, you got to wonder, like, how much of the stuff that Cheese says does Prop Joe actually believe? <laughs> because this is like a half-truth. It's not true, but it, and it's ridiculous. But it's like, it's she did pull a, a gun out of her dress, but it's like, wow. Yeah, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Cheese Wagstaff is funny, he's ridiculous, and he's going to have a story arc in season five, too. Awesome. Um, let's see. Uh, Carchetti meets with all the people in Lester's Barksdale folder. Oh, that was funny. When, when Car- Lester starts pulling out his old Barksdale folder, and he's going through all the political connections and stuff. And, and then in the, and we have like a cross-cut scene where Carchetti is meeting these same people at this kind of this black tie affair. And you're like, oh boy, you know, this is the swamp. This is, this is why nothing gets done because the people who something needs to be done about have connections with the people who would be in a position to do something about it. Right. So that was, that was an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, Presbo has become kind of the children's advocate. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah. The line, you know, when Lester 
says this is a tomb when he finds that that nail gun nail in the thing and mm-hmm. he realized like he's realized what they're doing what chris and snoop have been doing uh cuddy gets shot trying to pull uh michael mm-hmm. off the corner and yep. he goes to prison or no he goes to the hospital and that one nurse is really just giving him a hard time like this is what you deserve you come in here you take our tax money and stuff get shot you're gangbanging i saw you got prior criminal convictions and stuff and then bunny comes to visit him and she says are you here to arrest him you're police right And he's like arrest him no he he got shot trying to help a kid she's like oh wow Mm -hmm. she's like oh she kind of changes her whole perspective on the thing yeah um yeah. Uh, there was a part where, after he got shot, the Korean store owner where he got shot in front of, he comes out and he says, and I'm just happy to be able to do this, I can translate the Korean, he basically says, are you okay? Quickly, police call. Bali something something call. I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah, so there, there's that. Um, big line, I think this is kind of the where's Wallace of this season. You gonna look out for me, Sergeant Carver? You gonna look out for me? Mm-hmm. You gonna watch my back? All that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. After his house gets burned down, Randy is very accusatory towards Carver. Yeah, rightfully, rightfully so. so. Very so. Very much so. Um, there was Jay, I, I, I call it Jay Landsman's holiday cheer. Where yeah. he, you know, he comes in, he looks at the board, he's got his holidays, Christmas tie on, and he's got like fifty murders on the board, and he's got, um, he's got, you know, bugs or no, uh, uh, bubbles in the thing, confessing to a murder, and then Bubs throws up on him, and he goes to the bathroom to wash his shirt. He, while he's washing his shirt, he looks up and he sees some graffiti on the wall. <laughs> and it says like Rawls sucks dick or something and he kind of smiles and you wonder did Landsman do that is that his work he's just kind of like proudly admiring him <laughs> and does he know that he's probably right because he saw Landsman, he saw Rawls in the gay bar <laughs> and then he goes back out there <laughs> like, and there's this kind of like this semi-jovial holiday cheer to the whole scene and, and you, you realize like that I don't know it's, it's just like a Again, Landsman is a little demon living in this, his own personal level of hell, which Bubs happened to stumble into this season. <laughs> it's like, exactly. This is a weird, it's so weird, yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out why Chris and Snoop got um, out on bail, because obviously they're suspected of killing a lot of people, and they're not going to stop, probably. If you let them out, in fact, it's almost a sure thing that they're going to yeah. kill more people. Well, maybe they couldn't charge anything um, yet because they took the DNA samples from them, and they also took the gun. So I'm sure they'll maybe be bring them back when they match that up. I don't know, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm just thinking like they've got wit- they've got not witnesses, not first person witnesses necessarily, but the word on the street is these are the people who've been putting bodies in the with vacants. They've got a gun. They've got, you know, all this stuff. Um, I can't believe that they got back out on the street so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but Bunny, or uh, sorry, Bodie offered info on Marlo, but in the scene before he was killed, basically, yeah, with uh, with uh, McNulty at the Arboretum or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bunny Carver wants to adopt Naaman. Yep. Bodie Falls. Uh, I gotta say, Bunny Carver trying to adopt Naaman and and Weebay going for it. This felt a lot to me like kind of like the third season's conceit of having drugs be legalized. In that, I just could never seeing it happen. You know, mm-hmm. I could never see it happening. 
I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy it from WeeBay. I didn't buy that the mother would accept it because WeeBay said. Yeah. Yeah, Randy goes into a group home. Um, McNulty asks for his job back in the detail, which could be a fateful decision. Um, Walk on Gilded Splinters is a song. Love that song. Band. Love that and song. We, yeah. Then we see, we also see in that last scene, we see uh, Fayette Mafia crew forever with all the all the kids' names. And mm-hmm. it's really just kind of a poignant, sad moment because we see that they're all going in different directions. We see that their lives are not, you know, Naaman maybe his life may be getting better, but everybody else's life is getting worse. And you realize these guys are not going to be friends anymore, really. They're, they're kind of in different paths. And it's just, you know, and we've just kind of been on the journey with them the whole season. And now... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, so that's that's pretty much my last note. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to season five. Um, yeah, I can already tell I'm gonna want more after this is done. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, I yeah, I look forward to seeing how you think about the news season, the news season, the news media season in the next part. So. Yeah, I'm excited anyway, for that. Respecting your time, I know you got to get going here and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was yeah, good talking I think with you. you got a good episode in. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I hope our listeners are still uh, following along with the show with us here. Oh yeah, yeah. We got several dozen people uh, getting into it every time I put something up with the with the wire here. So I know there's there's some interest here. So, but all right, let's hope David Simon is one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, all right, well, have a good right, night, Chad. Have a good day, there, Bob. All right, later on. Right. Yeah, we'll Bye. talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.